The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. We are in John chapter 6 today. It's a continuing study of this fourth gospel. And we're going to go ahead and read John chapter 6. And it says there up on the screen through verse 40. We're probably going to go through verse, well, 45. So if you want to follow along, that's where we are. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went into Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. One of the things you'll notice is that John, and I point this out in the sermon today, only records six, well, seven miracles in his gospel. And he 
readily acknowledges the fact that Jesus did a great many others during the course of his earthly ministry. John is being selective. That's a big part of the sermon today. Um, But one of the things you'll notice is that when John is selective, and he only includes seven, they are long stories. Um, This story of Jesus and the Bread of Life discourse takes up the greater part of John chapter 6. And when we come to this morning's gospel lesson in church, it's basically the entirety of John chapter 9. So just brace yourselves. Uh, You're going to be standing there for a little while. And and just so you think, oh, they just choose these long lessons, I want you to understand we follow an established lectionary. So we don't choose them. We just preach them. So these are long stories. And that's one of the reasons why we have to go back and read the verses that we read last week and add a few on because... Oftentimes we forget the context, and the context is very important to our understanding of what's taking place here. So let's just do a very quick review. Uh, Jesus had performed this extraordinary miracle on, by the Sea of Galilee in which he had taken five loaves of bread, two small fish, and of course had fed this vast multitude. It was an extraordinary miracle. I pointed out that it's the only one that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in John, which tells us that it did make a huge impression upon the people. Now Jesus, after all of this, decides to send his disciples across the Sea of Galilee where he goes up on the hillside to pray. You know that they got caught in a terrible storm. Jesus came to their rescue walking on the water. And once he got into the boat with them, they landed safely on the opposite shore. The people, the next morning, get up. They are hungry. They'd been fed the night before, completely satisfied. There had been 12 baskets full left over, but it's breakfast. I don't know, maybe they're like hobbits, and it's second breakfast. But whatever the case, they are intent on finding Jesus so that he can once again establish his miraculous power to feed them physically. Uh, They get to the other side of the boat. They're astonished that Jesus is there, the other side of the lake, excuse me. And they're astonished that Jesus is there because they can't imagine how in the world he got over there. There were no boats that had left after the disciples had left. All the other boats had been driven in by the storm, so they're astonished. It never occurs to them, as I pointed out last week, that Jesus had walked on the water across the sea. But at any rate, when they get there, um, the first thing that they want is food. Now, they don't actually say that, but Jesus knows it. Because when they said to him, how did you get here? Jesus' first reply, Jesus cuts right through it. He says to them, I know why you're here. Um, I know why you're seeking me. You're seeking me because you were satisfied with the fish and the loaves. But don't be striving for that bread which will not satisfy you. Strive for that bread which will feed you and satisfy you for all eternity. And their answer is, well, what do we have to do to get that? I said, that's a typical American question. How much does it cost? Just tell me what I got to do, and I'll do it. And Jesus said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. Moreover, there's nothing that you can do. What you must do is simply to believe on the one that the Father has sent. It was not Moses who gave you food. That's what they say. Well, Moses gave us food from heaven, manna. I pointed out that most Jews in the first century believed that when the Messiah came, he would replicate the great miracle that had taken place out there in the wilderness. And so they said, well, if you are the bread of heaven and you can truly satisfy us, prove it. Go ahead and, 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 and do this miracle again. Do it over and over again because Moses fed us on a daily basis. You fed us once. It's almost a challenge to Jesus. 
It just goes to show their selfish motives. But Jesus makes it very clear. He says, it was not Moses who fed you, it was God who fed you. I'm the bread of life. And we talked about what the bread of life means, what bread was for people in the first century and how it was something that satisfies us. We said, when you think about how bread is made, there are a number of things that have to happen, that bread has to be, well, a seed of wheat has to be planted in the ground. It grows to fullness, and then it is cut down, and then it is, of course, sifted. It is baked, winnowed, baked in the heat of the fire, and then it is capable of nourishing. And we said that that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Uh, Jesus was planted in this world, as it were, by means of the incarnation, he grew up to fullness, to ripeness, and then he was cut down. He was winnowed, as it were. He was persecuted. He was afflicted. He suffered. And he was baked in the fires of the crucifixion and the tomb. But then three days later, he came forward as the one who is able to satisfy us and to feed us for all eternity. It's a powerful, powerful image. Bread is something we said was necessary for life and it's necessary for us all. And yet what is interesting is that in spite of everything that Jesus had done up to this point, we notice that the people still persist in unbelief. This is something that we notice over and over again in the course of Jesus' ministry. He'll do amazing things, miraculous signs. And I pointed out to you before, in John's gospel, that's how the miracles are described. They're not called miracles. They're called signs because they point to something beyond themselves. So Jesus is doing these miraculous things, but he wants them to understand that they're signs that point to who he really is, to his true identity. And he's done several already in this gospel, hasn't he? I mean, he's already changed the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. He has already healed the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda. He's already fed the 5,000. He's walked across the Sea of Galilee. And yet we're told that many still persisted in unbelief. Even, incidentally, some of his disciples we're going to see persisted in unbelief and the answer is well just show us one more miracle that's what we want just just one more do you ever feel like that in your life sometimes if God would just part the Red Sea I would believe if I could just see somebody come back from the dead I would believe it's always one thing more. But actually, if you're a Christian and you look back over the course of your life, you can see God's providential work in your life for years. And yet we still want what? We still want more. Why was it that these people, in spite of having been shown all of these signs, persisted in unbelief? Well, Jesus indicates the reason here in this passage. He says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Jesus is saying that only those that the Father gives to him can come to him. And the others persist in unbelief because the Father has not given them to him. This is a powerful statement about our own spiritual inability when it comes to matters of salvation. And we need to understand that. Somehow, we tend to think that we are capable of choosing Christ. But that's a failure to understand our true nature. 
and the terrible plight that is ours as sinful beings. I want you to keep your finger there in John and turn, if you will, to Ephesians for just a moment. Um, If you were in my Bible study on Ephesians, which I taught some years ago, then you're familiar with this text. I think it's one of the most important texts in the New Testament for us to understand who we are and the need of God's grace. In particular, what we're going to talk about today, and that is God's provenient grace, the grace that goes before. Now, what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 2 is he is writing to Gentile Christians. And he is reminding them of what they once were. Reminds me of that old movie. I, I love old movies. You know, um, my kids think I'm just crazy because I think anything that was made after 1980 is the pits for the most part. But, but there's an old movie starring um, Barbara Streisand. And, um, and, she okay? and Robert Redford. And that movie is called The Way We Were. You remember that story? The Way We Were. Well, this is a description of the way we were. That is what Paul is describing here in Ephesians. He's saying to these Gentile Christians, this is what you were. And it's helpful to remember what we once were and remember how far God has brought us. And he says to them in chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is that great teaching about justification by grace through faith. But you can never understand. In fact, I would go so far as to say that one of the hardest doctrines, if not the hardest doctrine for Christians to grasp, is what doctrine? Well, some are going to say, well, the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a hard one for me to fathom. You know, that one plus one plus one equals one. That's a tough one. Or you're thinking the doctrine of election or predestination, which this is related to. But I want to suggest to you that I think the hardest of all the doctrines for Christians to grasp is the doctrine of grace. We sing about it, we talk about it, but the reality is it's the hardest one for us to grasp. You know why? Because we always want to add something to it. We always want to add something to grace. What is grace? Biblically understood? Yes, there's an acronym for that, God's riches at Christ's expense. But biblically, what is grace? Oh, they grumbled. That's just like the text here says. They murmured. (laughs) Grace... Write this down in your Bible, in your margin, because you need to understand what it is. It's one of the most important of all Christian doctrines in terms of salvation. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. All right? God's undeserved, unearned favor. Now, if it's undeserved, 
and unearned, what that means is that you and I can contribute nothing to it. We can add nothing to it. And that's why I say it's hard for us to grasp that when it comes to salvation, you and I offer nothing in the process. Nothing. Zip. Zilch. Save the sin from which we need to be delivered. And you can never understand that, understand the power of grace, until you understand the dire situation that we are in. And that is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. You know, we sing hymns sometime that speak of us being sin-sick and sorrow-worn. But Paul says the diagnosis is far more serious than that. It's not a case of you being sick. You know, when a person is sick, there's always the possibility of recovery, isn't there? They could be very sick at the point of death, but so long as the heart is beating, so long as there's activity in the brain, so long as there's breath in the body, there is always the possibility, be it ever so small, of recovery. But that's not how Paul describes us here. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about spiritual death here, not physical death, of course. But the same analogy holds true that when it comes to spiritual matters, Paul says we're dead. Dead, not sick dead. And the question I always ask is, how much good can a dead person do? A dead person can do nothing for themselves. I've told you before that sometimes when I'm working through a class or a sermon, I, I go out in the cemetery. I don't do that now with the workers, but I used to go out in the cemetery and I'd walk through the cemetery and I'd, I'd practice the sermon. And I can tell you, I preached some very powerful sermons over there in that cemetery and never once has anybody responded. And that's because they're dead. They can't respond. Any more than Martha and Mary standing outside the tomb of their brother Lazarus, crying out to him, Lazarus, come forth. He never came out because he was dead. The only way that Lazarus came out is that Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and made him alive again. And once he had been made alive, he was capable of hearing the call of the master and coming forth. Well, what Paul is saying is that something analogous has to happen to you and me. We are spiritually dead every bit as much as Lazarus was physically dead. And you'll recall he'd been in the tomb for four days and the body had started to decompose. When Jesus said, roll away the stone, Martha replied, he stinketh. The body started to decompose. We cannot do that. That is the picture that Paul paints of the human condition here in Ephesians chapter 2. You and I, spiritually speaking, we may be physically up and walking about, you know, we live in this thing where people are fascinated by zombies and there are zombie movies and everything. This is what we are. We are spiritual zombies. We're physically up, walking about, conducting business, doing all of that. But when it comes to spiritual matters, you and I are completely dead. The gospel may be preached to us, but we are incapable of hearing it, let alone responding to it because we are dead. And you say, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Surely it can't be that bad. But that is exactly what Paul says, and he repeats it. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive 
together with Christ. Here is an important point that you need to understand. We often think, and this is the way we sometimes preach, that we are saved by grace through faith. That's absolutely right. But we tend to think that faith precedes regeneration, that faith precedes the new birth. Believe, and you'll be born again. What I want to suggest to you, and what I think Paul is teaching here in Ephesians chapter 2, I don't think it, it's what he's teaching here, is that actually the new birth precedes faith. God makes us alive, and then we are capable of responding in faith. So the gift of faith is just that. It is a gift, and it is indicative of the fact that you and I have been made alive again. That's why Paul keeps repeating that it is by grace that you have been saved. And he'll repeat that again. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast. You hear how he says that over and over again? It's by grace. You understand it's grace, not works. It is by grace. You contribute nothing to the process. Paul keeps saying that over and over and over again. Well, if you go back now to John's gospel and you ask the question, why? In spite of all of these signs, in spite of all of these miracles, was it that these people still refused to believe? Certainly part of the answer is due to the fact that they were unable to believe. They were dead, dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And Christ was going to have to make them alive again. And one of the signs of new life would be a change of nature. Change of nature. Now this brings us into the whole question of free will. You hear a lot about free will these days. I want to suggest to you that you and I do not have free will. We have free choice, and there is a distinction between the two. Our will, according to Martin Luther, and Luther was simply borrowing this from St. Augustine, our wills are bound because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. That is to say, our desires, the desires of our hearts, and this is what the Old Testament said, is only to do evil all the time. Unless God makes us alive again. And if God makes us alive, he's got to change our nature. He's got to give us new desires. Now, when I say the difference between free choice and free will, think of it this way. We make our choices freely. You definitely have free choice. But your choices are going to be based upon your likes and your dislikes. Your desires. This is why Thomas Cranmer said... Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So your, your heart desires chocolate. Your will is going to choose chocolate over vanilla every time. It's even more serious than that, though. The illustration that I would use is the, the illustration of a lion and a lamb. A lion is a carnivore. It's the only thing that the lion is going to eat. He's only going to eat meat. 
Now, you can put a lion in a cage and feed him oats. And the lion is physically capable of eating the oats. But that lion will starve to death before he'll eat the oats. Why is that? Because his nature is to be a carnivore. And the only way that that animal is going to eat oats is if it has a change of nature. Now, think about a lamb. A lamb will only eat oats. It's not going to eat meat. You can put the best steak in there. You can put prime rib in there. But that animal is not going to eat it. Moreover, if the lamb wanders into the lion's den, it's mutton for dinner. See, what has to happen is there has to be a change of nature in the lion or a change of nature in the lamb. And there has to be a change of nature in you and me because we are all sinners. And you'll hear it in the sermon today. This might be um, a reason for you to go home before you go to church. I don't know. But you're going to hear it in the sermon. This is our natural condition. We're born this way. Dead in our trespasses and in our sins in regard to spiritual matters. And so what God has to do is he has to make us alive again. And that has to be grace. It has to be grace. Undeserved, unearned favor. So one of the reasons why these people could not respond to Jesus in spite of all the miracles is because there was a spiritual inability. They needed to have a change of nature. And what that requires, of course, is a new birth. We have to be born again, and that is what John talks about three chapters earlier in this gospel. He says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see nor understand the things of the kingdom. You have to be reborn, and this means that God's grace has to precede everything else in your life. This is what theologians call provenient grace. God's grace precedes if you believed in Jesus Christ, it is because Jesus Christ was already working in your life to believe. He made you alive even when you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now, that may be a little deep. For some, that may be troubling. But actually, if you're a Christian, if you believed in Jesus Christ, that is a cause for you to rejoice. That God has been at work in your life. He didn't leave it up to you. You want to know one of the reasons why I know that I was saved by grace? You want to know the reason I know that, that Christ chose me? I'll tell you why. Because, brothers and sisters, I would never have chosen him. It's as simple as that. I would never have chosen him. Now, you're thinking, oh, no, no, no. You're our rector, and we know that you would have. I'm telling you. I know myself better than you know me. I'm telling you I would never have chosen him. His grace proceeded. It went before. Undeserved, unearned favor. And that's why Jesus says, all that do come to me, I will never cast out. If you are coming to him today, it's because he is already at work in your life. And the good news is this, when you come to him, he's never going to throw you out because it's God's grace. It's God's work. And it's God's work, listen to this, from start to finish. God always finishes what he starts. Now, that's not true of human beings. 
Uh, it is a matter of pride that when I start a book, I have to press through to the end, whether it's a terrible book or not, because I've just got to finish it. But I have to admit, there have been a few times in my life where I've said, this is not worth it. We don't finish the job. We don't finish the task. Jesus talked about this in one of his parables. He said, no king goes to war without first counting the cost. No man builds a tower without first counting the cost lest he start the work and be unable to finish. Well, let's be honest. There are many things in our life that we start that we never finish. Most of them are New Year's resolutions. We start them, but we don't finish them. But I want you to know that God always does. And he says, whoever comes to him, he will never, ever, no matter what, cast out now you ask the question well who may come to Christ because Jesus says whoever does come he'll never cast out who may come to Christ I want to suggest to you a couple of things first of all anyone may come to Christ now he is at work in their life making them alive again but he is not interested in whether they're educated or ignorant he is not interested in whether they have money or influence or power Jesus calls all sorts and conditions of men and women. All may come. Remember, we're all sinners. And it doesn't matter how much sin it is in your life. You may say, well, I'm not a great sinner. I'm a small sinner. Listen, all sin is deadly. That's like asking the question you've heard me say before, how rotten is rotten meat? It's rotten. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So it may be that if you're within the sound of my voice and you feel as though God is saying something to you this morning, that you need to stop resisting, you need to come, I want you to understand that is the grace of God already at work in your life. That is the Holy Spirit right now drawing you. And the promise is that if you will come, he will never cast you out. How may I come? Once I get my life straightened out? Once I've managed to clean up my act? How does the old hymn put it? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. You may come to Jesus Christ just as you are. Now, understand this. He loves you too much to leave you just as you are. You can't clean up your act because you're dead, but he'll clean up your act. He'll make you alive. He'll give you a new life, a new birth, and he will clean you up and make you meet for the kingdom of God. But if he's calling you, you come just as you are. Naked, as it were. You come to Christ just as you are. You know, some people, when they hear the gospel... And Christ makes them alive. All of a sudden, the light bulb goes on. They come running to Jesus Christ. They are so thrilled. I've seen this over the years. It's as though they have been groping around. We'll talk about this in the sermon too. Groping around in the dark for a long time. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. And they just come running to Jesus Christ. Running at the idea that there's grace, that there's mercy, that there's pardon. That the slate can be wiped clean. That you can begin again. Now, one of the worst things I ever heard was a man who said to his daughter, yo, she lost her virginity when she was 15 years old. That's something you can never regain. 
And that poor girl lived the rest of her life thinking to herself she had lost something she could never get back, her innocence. And I want you to understand you can. That's the whole point. In God's eyes, you can be as clean as the driven snow. So you may come running to Christ. You may come limping to Christ. You know, some people do. They come limping to Christ. They, they bring all of the baggage of their life along with them. All the baggage of their past, all the baggage of their relationships, all the baggage of their family and all of that. And they drag all of that along and they have been wounded so much in life they come limping to Christ. But I want you to understand, you may come limping to Christ if that's the case with you today. You can come running to him, you can come limping to him. You may come with halting steps to Christ. Two great examples of this are the Apostle Paul, who certainly came haltingly to Christ, resisting Christ's pull on his life. I mean, Paul, when he describes his own conversion in the book of Acts, he says, I was kicking against the goads. That is to say, you know right now that God is calling you to come and give your life to him, but you are resisting. You're, you're holding back. Well, you may come, just keep coming. With all your questions, with all your doubts, just keep coming. Kick against the goads, if you will. God is patient. The other example is C.S. Lewis. I think Brian left. Too bad. But I love the way Lewis describes his conversion in the book Surprised by Joy. He said, you must picture me alone in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, I love this part, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept the convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words, compel in prayer, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion, his compulsion is our liberation. Now, Lewis is just describing his own life and his own conversion, but that's a picture of God's grace on him. He came reluctantly, haltingly. I, that's how I came to the priesthood, quite frankly. A little story of my own life. I had spent a year in college. I was attending a small Episcopal church um, in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, St. Mary's Church. Um, we had maybe 20 people in church on Sunday, maybe. 
But the priest was a gospel man. He was a very humble man. He was not a great preacher, but he was a faithful preacher. And he was not the most dynamic person in the pulpit, but he was a good gospel man. His name was Father George Pierce. He was in charge of what was known as the church army. It's an evangelistic arm of the Church of England. It's like the Salvation Army. Their job is to reach out to the down and outers. And that's what Father Pierce has spent his whole life doing, reaching out to the poor. And he became rector of this church, only about 20 people. And I was attending there as a college student. And he was really good to me. He and his wife would invite me over for lunch um, you know, and that was a whole lot better than cafeteria food. So I went over and I had food with him and, and he really sort of mentored me and loved on me and cared for me. And I remember that when I was getting ready to go off to college and work in Sandusky, Ohio for a summer, that Father Pierce pulled me aside one day and he said, will you do me a favor while you're away for summer? And I said, sure. He said, would you pray about the priesthood? Say, what? <laughs> would, you, would you think about the priesthood? Now, I, I had no desire to become a minister. I've got to be honest with you. I, I thought I'd become a lawyer or a history professor or something like that. But, but, you know, I thought about the priesthood like every Catholic girl thinks about going into the convent for like two seconds. And that was all I was interested in. But he said to me, he said, all I'm asking you to do is to pray about it. Pray about it. And I thought to myself, you know, this fellow's been so good to me. The least I can do is when I say my prayers, ask God, do you want me to become a priest? And so I did. I, I said my prayers most nights before I went to bed. I said my prayers, confessed my sins before getting into bed. And remembering Father Pierce and how kind he was to me, I'd say, Lord, and if you want me to be a priest, okay, amen. And then I'd go on. And it was like Lewis it was this unrelenting approach, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. And I really struggled for those three months. Now, understand, I was a teenager, maybe 20 years old at that point, maybe, 19. And I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling with this because the more I pray about it, and I'm just, you know, just throwing up a dart into the air, as it were, I began to feel as that that is exactly what God wanted me to do. And by the end of the summer, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt. But I remember the night when I gave in. It was just like Lewis. I got down on my knees in Sandusky, Ohio, at an amusement park where I was working. And I got down in my dorm room on my knees, and I said, all right, I give up. You're making me miserable. I said, if you want me to be a priest, I'll do it. But you better make me happy. <laughs> I did. That's exactly what I said. You know, sometimes you come haltingly. You come limping. You come resisting. And that's exactly how I did. I said, I'll do it, but you're going to have to make me happy because I don't like the idea. And by the end of that summer, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt I could do anything and be successful. I could not do anything and be contented. And so from that moment till this moment, and I'm now 53, I had no doubts whatsoever that that was God's call on my life. But brothers and sisters, I did not come running. I came to Christ and his call on my life limping. 
resisting, haltingly. But he was ever so patient and he will be ever so patient with you. Who may come? Anyone may come. If God's working on your life, he's calling you. How may you come? You can run to Christ. You can limp to Christ. You can come kicking against the goads to Christ, but come. When may I come? At any stage in your life. In the morning of your life, that is to say when you are young, it is best. And I see some young folk out there today. It is best to come to Christ when you are young. So that you can spend your whole life in fellowship with him. So that you don't waste the years not spent in fellowship with him. You're never too young to come to Christ. If you're old enough to sin, then I want you to understand you're old enough to die. Because the wages of sin is death. So come to Christ, especially when you are young. You may come in the noon of your life when you've got the world by the tail. When you're successful and everything is exciting and you think you're in charge of your life, well, then come to Christ. I will say to you, it is harder to come to Christ the older you get. Because what we say is, well, I'm going to come to Christ, but right now I'm having a great time. Right now I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'll come to Christ when it is convenient. And I'm going to suggest to you it will never be convenient. If you say, I'll wait and come to Christ, what are you going to be doing in the intervening years? I'll tell you what you're going to be doing. You're going to be doing your own thing. You're going to be the master of your own fate. You're going to be sinning. And what is that is going to do is it's going to harden your heart to God. It's going to make it harder for you to come to him. So it may be that God is calling you when you're young. Hallelujah, come to him. But it may be that really you never understood the gospel until the noon of your days. Come to him then. God is able to bring you to him. He's up to the challenge. And yes, you can even come in the evening of your life. The thief on the cross, I think, is the perfect example of that. There on the cross, he'd missed a whole lifetime of fellowship with God, but it was never too late for him. Remember me, he said, when you come into your kingdom. You notice there were two thieves on the cross. One reviled Jesus. One hated him. One felt the pull of God's grace even there. And felt himself being made alive even as though he was dying physically. And he said, Lord, remember me. I say that this man is the luckiest man alive. Now you, you think to yourself, lucky? I do. I think he was the luckiest man alive. Because there were hundreds of thousands of people that were crucified during the Roman era. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands at least. And just think about that for a moment. On all the days... On all the crosses, in all the years, this man happened to be crucified next to Jesus Christ. And as Jesus called to him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He heard the grace of God and he who is dead was made alive again and he responded, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, today 
you will be with me in paradise. You may come in your final moments. You may say, well, I've made a waste of it, so had this man. But the bottom line is this. All may come, but you must come. There is no other way to be saved. And the question is this. Have you come to Jesus Christ? I'm not asking the question, have you come to church? Glad you came to church. But it may be that God has brought you to church first that you may come to him ultimately. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, come to him. Come to him today. It is God's grace working in your life. You're hearing in my voice the voice of the good shepherd. And he's saying, whoever comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, there may be someone here today who has been coming to church their whole life. They've been coming to Bible study, but they have never actually come to Jesus. Perhaps this is the day. Perhaps they are hearing in this word from John the call of the good shepherd. We know that when the shepherd speaks, his sheep hear his voice. So grant that if there be any here who have wandered from the fold, who have not yet heard the shepherd's voice, that today, either in this class or in this sermon or in the music today, that they might hear the voice of him who is the good shepherd, the bread of life, the one who says, come to me. Come in the noon of your life, the morning of your life, the evening of your life. Come just as you are. Come limping. Come running. Come haltingly, but come. And I will never cast you out. Grant this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.